Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh, two people who I presume would also not like to fall into snakes, snake pits like Indiana Jones. Correct me if I'm wrong mm. on that. Would you be okay with falling into a snake pit, Angelina? No. Tim? Nor the bats, nor the spiders, <laughs> nor the dead body. I mean, really take your pick. None of those were really awesome. Presumably, what about the, gun, the gunfire? Theoretically, I could dodge that. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Hold, hold on. Take a step back here. You're more confident in your ability to dodge gunfire than snakes and spiders. Okay, I'm just saying there was a lot of misfiring guns in this book. I might want to take my chances. That oh, snake did not miss. That's true. There, there were misfiring guns. It's true. It's, it's a theme. And Tim, are you, are you of the Indiana Jones mind here? What is your... We'll just, I'm just gonna let's just let's have some therapy. What is your number wow. one? Going to our deep seated fears here. Here we yeah, go. What is your number one um, living creature based fear? Ooh. So excluding ooh, things ooh. like heights or flying or you know um, yeah malaise. What is the what is the oh uh, my gosh. what is your number one animal living creature based fear? Like what would you really? You're telling us you're not afraid of this. There was no... Okay, when you were a kid, what was the thing you would have a nightmare about? Oh, that's a great way to ask the question. Because you may have, like, theoretically grown out of it as far as, like, you realize it's unlikely that you're going to fall into a pit with full of rattlesnakes, but you could still have a dream about it. Okay, I'll, I had a friend named Robert. We were growing up, and he had a pet snake, and he was always trying to get me to hold it. Like He was just a fanatic about the snake. He'd put it down at his shirt and like let it kind of like slide around his belly, and I wouldn't even hold the thing. I mean, it's just an innocent gardener snake or garden snake, whatever you call it. Um, I had no interest. It might be snakes. I'm not crazy about the guys. Mm. So Isabella had a pet snake. None of those, and I don't have creature fears, so to be perfect, and and I'm so terrified of this that a little part of me doesn't want to say it into the universe lest I provoke a self-inflicted curse here. It's like Uh, like you don't want to get a will because as soon as you get a will, you know you're going to die. That's right. That's right. So um, just just bear this in mind if this should happen to me. My deep fear is being buried alive. So it's not the animals that freaked me out about that as much as the idea of her sliding down the hole to she doesn't know what and being in the dark underground. Um, my fear of that is so intense that last week when I finished reading Tom Sawyer, that whole like in the dark feeling his way out of the cave business, uh-uh, uh-uh, can't, can't handle that. And just like in Paralandra, the same thing, that is that section when Ransom is in the dark trying to find his way out of the, of the cave and he's feeling by his hands and he can't breathe. And so you remember he has to, he has to actually get into more and more confined spaces before he can get out. And so he's just trusting that he won't get stuck in there and suffocate to death. That is so intense for me. I can barely cope with reading it. I get all angsty, blood pressure raised. Yeah, that's it. So that was the fear for me. I'd stay up there with the snakes any day. Don't put me underground. Mm-hmm. So you must really dislike like half of the of Edgar Allan Poe's canon. It's yeah, it's a lot of buried alive. <laughs> I mean, I relate to that as a primal fear. <laughs> <laughs> David, how about for you, butterflies? Um, I am intensely afraid of moths. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Well, okay. So the snake, I don't prefer snakes, but I have a kid who is obsessed with them. So I've had to hold and be around my, you know, like deal with that discomfort. I would call it more of a 
preference not to be around them than it would be a fear. Um, right. But my kid is super obsessed with them. And so I've found myself at um, reptile fairs and things like that, holding ball pythons and stuff like that in a way that I never would have thought I would ever do um, because I have this weird affection for the kid. Um, uh, I would say though, that I'm probably like the one that bats really are weird for me. Like I, I really don't prefer bats. I gotta say, I like, I'm more, I would prefer to be around snakes and spiders than bats, which I realize is weird because bats are like way less likely to want to be around me. None of these things are super into people, of course, but, um, of the three things that she encountered, I probably would least like to be encounter bats. David, I'm going to tell you an, a nightmare story. <laughs> I, Did you get bit by a, uh, a bat that had rabies? <laughs> I could have been. I, I used to live in this old church that I was... It's a long story. I lived in an old church. The church was infested by bats. I think somebody came out and did an estimate. and It was like in the five digits, you know, like 10,000 bats or something like that. Anyway... <laughs> They, they rarely affected me. They would just kind of like belch out of the apex of this church. There was like a hole and you know, around dusk, they would just kind of like come out like a volcano. Anyway, this one night I'm sleeping in my bed and I'm having a dream. And in the dream, there's a huge ceiling fan. And the ceiling fan has got these really wide blades and it's descending down toward my bed. And of course, I'm sleeping in my bed and I'm afraid that you know, the ceiling fan is going to kind of chop me up. And then I wake up and I'm laying there. It's pitch black. And I'm like, that's not a ceiling fan. That's a bat. <laughs> so a bat had fallen into my room from the attic and was just making circles, circles, circles in my room. And so I crawled out of my bed and I turned the light on. And sure enough, there's the bat. And I had to evacuate him by like, kind of chasing him out with these big pillows that were on my bed. So it was a bad, it was a bad me, night. Makes me think of the episode of the office where Dwight puts the black garbage bag mm-hmm. over Meredith's head and traps the bat on top of her. Head. Oh, I haven't seen that. and then she gets hydrophobia. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Angelina, Fear probably water. Can, Angelina can probably uh, recite every line of that episode, or at least your daughter can, right? <laughs> my daughter can. <laughs> Hey, before we get into True Grit, and of course, we're going to finish our conversation. Well, we're going to finish talking about the book proper, I guess. Um, and then we'll have a couple more episodes. But I just want to say a quick word from our friends over at Ohio Christian University who are bringing close reads to the masses this week. OCU is a values-driven institution that prepares students to become servant leaders engaging their world. Ohio Christian University's main campus is located in Circleville, Ohio, which I always almost read as Circeville because people always call us the Circle Institute. Um, and and so Circleville, Ohio is just 30 miles south of Columbus. No, I, you have no idea how many times. No, I, I know autocorrect that. changes y'all to circle constantly. Like if I talk to, like if I call the bank or I go to the bank or I talk to anybody that I have to do deal with some customer service thing where I've been waiting on the line for an hour, I was like Circle Institute, and I'm like, "Yep, that's good enough." Oh, you're with you're with that Circle Institute. I, y'all yeah. are doing fine things. Y'all reading, we y'all reading that one and book. We sing Kumbaya around the campfire. <laughs> well, that that actually is kind of close to what happens here. At OCU, <laughs> you will experience personal. Isn't that what this show's all about? At OCU, <laughs> uh, your students will We're experience the feel per- good hit of the year. <laughs> 
Exactly, exactly. At OCU, your students will experience personal relationships with all the professors through small class sizes. They have a 10 to 1 student to faculty ratio. Um, so they take that uh, small class and personal relationships thing seriously. OCU is committed to teaching Christian classical worldview that is taught throughout all of their uh, 30 plus degrees and majors. So even if you're in business or ministry or teacher education, that is going to be applying to that major as well. Uh, OCU is a private school education at a public school cost. You can earn a four-year bachelor's degree at OCU that will cost you less than half the total price of average completion fees. Um, They take seriously the idea that education should be affordable and they work hard to make that happen. You can schedule a campus visit or apply online today at uh, www.ohiochristian.edu or call 1-877-7-O-C-U-N-O-W. So that's 1-877-7-O-C-U-N-O-W. And that's ohiochristian.edu. So thanks to Ohio Christian for sponsoring and um, for making um, Close Reads possible. And as I said, bringing it to the masses who are loving True Grit. Which brings us to the topic at hand. David, you picked a great book, mister. I love this book. I want it's to- so good. So let's, I've got lots of questions. People were saying some things on Facebook that was tying into some of the questions that I had. Uh, as I was reading it for the fourth time. And the one thing I love about reading a book for the fourth time is that you don't really have to think about how it ends. Um, it's more about like how the author is kind of putting the puzzle pieces together and where the seams are and all that kind of stuff and having some fun looking at how a good author, you know, does what they do. But there's also some of the, some ideas really stood out to me that I'd love to hear, hear y'all's thoughts on. Uh, but first, let's talk about, um, other than the discomfort of the climactic scene there um some of your just sort of lingering impressions of of the book uh and some of the things that you you're you're sort of when it ended when you closed the book how were you feeling in that moment and tim i'll turn that over to you first um i guess i guess you could say it first impressions but that seems weird to say when you've been reading it for a while right you're you're yeah, first, last impressions or last first impressions or whatever. Yeah. The emotional Seven. response is something I'm very interested in with this book for some reason. As I was reading it, I was trying to think about how did I feel when I first read it? Yeah. Curious, how do you guys, how did you feel at the end of this journey with Maddie Ross? I was sad the book was over. I kind of missed Rooster and um, I wish that his plight would have been a little bit more constructive it sounds like he kind of like fell back into his bad ways for a little bit you know it's it's i mean he's a he's a complicated character he's a he's a um he's not a all righteous fellow he's not an all bad fellow but i kind of thought like this episode with maddie maybe he would kind of you know turn toward the light a little bit more but he doesn't that was a little i was sad about that because i was really put Pulling for Rooster. That's that was my, my closing thoughts were, or my closing, you know, emotion was. How did you feel, Angelina? Did you do? Did you? Did you? Were you? Was your lingering <laughs> thought? Why did? I was, I was just I was waiting gonna, for the question. No, I was going to ask you a different question, and then in my as he's talking there, I was like, I need to rephrase this because I want to shift gears a little bit. Because so, you want to lead my answer, okay. No, no, actually, I actually wasn't, isn't meaning to be a leading question. Um, Tim just brought up something. He, he brought up the idea that he, he felt 
badly, I guess, or discouraged or whatever that that rooster didn't turn to the light uh, permanently. Did you find yourself sort of grieving for what could have been for rooster, but in the end, maybe it wasn't? No, because my primary love is story structure. And this type of story always has to leave with the cowboy leaving the community and riding off into the sunset and not fitting in. I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole point, right? It's, it's the American myth. And it, it's really interesting because with the narrative structure of, of Maddie telling the story you know, backwards, um, it begins in one set of myths and ends in another set of myths. The fact that Rooster ends up in a, in a, basically a sideshow, a circus, right? That, that is the, like the setting, um, not setting like scene, but to set in place the American myth and legend, right? Now they're just going around, you buy a ticket and you can see the cowboys, woo, the legendary, uh, Western people. So it, it, it the whole thing is to, is setting the myth and, whether it's Shane or, or any of those types of stories. Um, Shane is one I've seen a few times, so that one comes to mind. But it, it always mm-hmm, leads mm-hmm. with the cowboy leaving. He has to leave. He, his role is to reestablish the community, but it, it never fits him into it. He, he, he's never going to be integrated into it. That's the, whole, that's the whole tension in these books is that these guys don't fit in. So I expected Rooster to fit in. And honestly, my, so my, my, my reaction reading it was, I just went nuts at the ending. I mean, it was an archetype's dream. And I had my little checklist in my head and I was like, check, 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 check. And I was just, I was just super excited because it, it absolutely turned into a fairy tale. Uh, it ends just like you would expect a medieval romance and legend to end. Um, and we can talk about that more if you want me to break down everything, but I was just, I was just checking all my boxes, check, check, check. And there it is. And there it is. And there it is. And so it was just. I, I had a, I was, I was just thrilled. I was thrilled to see that my little theory, uh, that it was going to work out like a medieval tale t- turned out to be true. So, yeah, um, we can talk, there's lots of stuff we can talk about as far as, uh, the, the fairy tale medieval side of things. I'm, I want to talk about this idea that rooster kind of becomes part of a sideshow. Um, because with one of the James brothers, right? Yeah. And in fact, actually Jesse James himself became, you know, he, he went on, the road, so to speak, you know, uh, Wild Bill Hickok, it, it became, it became the birth of, you know, the Western romance, the Western legend, the, these kind of like circus uh, Western sideshows became what led into the sort of Roy Rogers, um, and the Lone Ranger myths, um, and, and really fed the, the Western dime novel culture that sprung up in the early 1900s that kind of gave birth to the 1930s to 1970, say 1960, maybe um, American obsession with Westerns. Um, but doesn't in a way it doesn't, it, isn't it, isn't what Portis is doing here kind of sub, subverting sort of the legend? Um, because. <clears throat> How so David, how are you thinking about that? Well, because you know, yeah, he, he sends Rooster off, but there's no real well, one thing. Okay, so one of the questions I've been thinking about is um, what who's the hero of this story? Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, um, I, I randomly was talking about this with Heidi White, our, our mutual friend Heidi White, like, um, because she was talking about how she liked this book and she was in town for that conference and she and I kind of got chatting about it. Um, and so I was, I was thinking, who is the hero of this book? Um, because, you know, in, in most of the Westerns, it's the hero who 
rides off, right? Yeah, um, that's true. Mm-hmm. It's the hero who solves the problem and then heads off to or 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 fulfills the mission or whatever whatever the rescues the damsel, whatever. Um, as in this case. Um and typically is because they have succeeded at something, right? So they had this goal and they succeeded and the work is over. So he then it, it chooses to ride off into the sunset is kind of sort of the archetypal overused so this, thing. This... So, is, so, so then who's the hero? And then do they, does the hero here succeed in, in the mission that was, they were set out to do? That they set out to, to accomplish? Well, I feel like I might be reading this too simply, but I thought Rooster was the hero and he succeeded at the quest because he killed Tom Chaney and then he, and then he left. Even though Matt, I don't, I don't know. I don't disagree. the shooting. I should not kill him. Yeah, she doesn't kill him. Maddie also, I mean, Maddie also is not reintegrated into the society, not fully. Mm -mm. So she's a, she's an interesting character too. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so mean, basically, in order to get married the, and all that, in order to fit the archetype, you can't really have a first-person narrator because you couldn't have a first-person narrator right off into the distance because we're always with that narrator. Right. That's true. So, because so one of the, so Tim, do you view Rooster or Maddie or I guess someone else as as the hero of the story? And this goes back to the whole, um, the whole question we were talking about with uh, the bracket. Um, is are we talking when we talk about hero? Are we talking right. about our hero? I was just are we thinking about that, yeah. protagonist, or are we talking about something else? Um, <clears throat> so, I probably would be okay thinking that you have a double protagonist here. Yeah. Maddie yeah, and, because, and Rooster. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, Maddie and Rooster. It seems to me like you've got. I mean, Rooster does the killing. Maddie does the shooting. Maddie's will at the beginning of the book, I, I kind of think that Tom Chaney gets away with it if it's not for Maddie's like, indomitable spirit in the beginning of the book that carries on throughout the book, you know? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think the fact that Rooster saves her at the end in this like incredibly selfless, long-suffering act, that also seems like it really places him in the center of the book in the hero's role. So yeah, I think Angelina's right. Probably it's a double double protagonist, double hero. Go ahead, Angelina. You were you had something on that too, I think. Well, I don't know if you can use this term in a Western, but it, it's it, Maddie's having a Bildens Roman, right? That's the that's the term for. Oh, it. I, I def, yeah, I definitely think that's that's true. Right, I, I wouldn't say that Rooster is. So, no, no, it's a, no. so it's not a double Bildens Roman. So a Bildens Roman is just a novel of development of a character. So she's, she's definitely on a, on an internal journey. We see her go from a little girl to a woman. We get her basic life story. Most, um, you, the most commonly de- the, like if you're studying it in college or whatever, they're going to call it a coming of age novel. Like that's how they're going to define a Bildens right. Roman mostly. So people have heard that term probably used, you know, in, in the same vo- the same breath as the Bildens Roman. Right. And, and, she fits a lot of the characteristics. I was thinking about this last night, actually. She's a functional orphan, right? Her, her father's dead. 
we never see her actually with her mother at any point in the book. So she's a functional orf- orphan. So, I mean, that's uh, oftentimes you have the the orphan motif uh, mm-hmm. in, in these types of stories. She even seems like she's more, she's more mature than her mom. We had references to her, yes, her mom. Yeah, she definitely anxious. feels like, so yeah, Jane Eyre, Huck Finn, on and on, any number of Dickens heroes, they're orphans. And so their coming of age also is to figure out, uh, find their, father figure, mother figure, whatever, somebody who helps them along the way. And um, there's usually good ones and bad ones. And um, they go through various obstacles to grow as a human being and, and learn about themselves because they don't have that that family upbringing. And there's usually a surrogate family at some point, which of course we see that here with, with Maddie. Mm-hmm. And uh, competing competing surrogate fathers or surrogate husbands or whatever whatever's going on there. <laughs> with 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 Lviv. so yeah uh, so yeah it's almost like you got two different quests here which is very interesting and because she and rooster sort of you know they diverge at the end in their quest but she's also not integrated back into society which i found surprising at the end of the book um not surprising in terms of it being inconsistent with her character not at all i mean she's she's maddie the little bookkeeper from beginning to end and, and in fact when they kidnap her and force her to sign checks was hilarious i mean it's like the best ransom to see we're gonna make you sign these checks and she's like the bank won't accept it if it's not in ink well we'll find some ink and it was that was that was fabulous the whole bookkeeper motif of her was fantastic so of course that it made sense um but i was surprised that she did not get to be reintegrated into society at the end no no one did which raises all sorts of questions did you feel like it ended abruptly tim I was thinking about that, having read it before. No. You know, what I didn't, what I, I kind of felt like the book was ready to end um, after Tom Chaney gets shot. Mm-hmm. The whole falling into the hole and the snakes, you know, postlude, whatever you want to call it. That to me, I think it's good. It didn't diminish the power of the book. Um, but it just seemed like a kind of a slightly unexpected detour from our main task which was tom chain yeah so ultimately are were they successful in their quest is is one thing i was thinking about too because um so angelina you said your initial response is yeah they were successful rooster's the hero because he kills the bad guy they're successful because the bad guy dies but was that ultimate you know one of the things that they talked about so much throughout the book uh, you had Labeef and Rooster and Maddie all debating what the right thing is to do as far as capturing him. Mm-hmm. Should we capture him alive? Do we kill him? Is it just if he just if we just shoot him? Is, has justice been served if we just kill him? Is justice better served if he goes and hangs for the killing the senator? Is it better served if he goes back to where Maddie's from and hangs because he killed her father? And she's got these. He, she's very particular about how it's going to happen. And Labeef's not so particular. He just wants his money. And Rooster's just. You know, Rooster, you're never really sure what he actually feels like the truth is. And in the end, he is killed in a little fight, like this little skirmish, and then he falls into a pit and he's dead. And that's the end of it. There's no questions anymore brought up by anybody, whether Maddie, Labeef, Rooster, or anybody else, about whether justice has been met in the situation. She calls her bullet a lead ball of justice. <laughs> she, so that was great. She does, which so is her perspective on ju- on whether it was just. Well, here's how it altered. read to me, and then you guys can correct me if you 
think I'm missing anything here, but how it read to me is that the whole question that she's wrestling with about what is the best way to have justice and where's the best place to him to have a trial, that was incredibly naive. And once she's face to face with these men, and it's not just a theory, right? When she's in the courtroom at the beginning, listening to the, to the defense attorney give Rooster a hard time, it's still in the theoretical, right? Mm-hmm. What's theoretically, what's the best thing Rooster have, should have done? But once she's in the moment, all of that disappears instantly. She, she finds Cheney, she pulls out her gun, and she attempts to, like, you know, citizen arrest, right? Come back with me and face justice. So she starts off with this naive, I can do this, and then ends up almost getting killed. Um, getting kidnapped. Uh, and then after that, it's like one long move towards self-defense. I, I mean, one of them's going to die. That, that's the only way this, this can, this can come out. And so it, it's not even a question of justice anymore for this killing as much as it is trying to keep Maddie alive. So it read to me like, like Portis is showing us that that's just a naive debate. Once you get into this world. Though, though doesn't it, I think that Rooster would say that to Labeef, which is kind of strange because Labeef has got more experience than Maddie out there. Um, it seems okay. Never mind. That, that was a side comment. That didn't really mean anything. Maddie <laughs> wants to kill him the whole time. I don't think she ever wavers on that. Well, except when she's face to face with him, she doesn't shoot first and ask questions. She identifies herself. She says, "I'm going to take you back." Come with me. Labeef also tries to keep him alive, if you notice, right? Labeef doesn't um, shoot him, and then that ends up biting him really hard. Both of them almost get killed because he doesn't shoot Cheney and tries to take him in alive. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that Maddie's opportunity to shoot him, if she was just going to straight up shoot him by the river, that I think would have smacked of injustice to basically kind of just shoot in the back almost. He would have had no warning. I felt like her, when she pulled the pistol, she points it at him and she says, you know, kind of you're under arrest. I've got 50 marshals on the other side of the river. I feel like all of that was just pretense because she was going to pull the trigger. She wanted to pull the trigger. I did. I did. Cause I don't recall any moment in the book where, she was no, that's not true. I take that back because she and Labeef do have kind of a conversation about where he's going to go back. What, where's the trial going to take place? And she wants yeah. to go to yeah. uh, her hometown. So that's true. I take that back. Yeah. She only shoots him when he says, I don't believe you could actually shoot me. So I'm just going to walk away. He, you know, he calls her bluff. Yeah. Love that you know it was super important to her to identify herself and to say why he's facing this. You know, she, she has like a little speech for him, and that was very important to her that he know why. And even that, yeah, whole, right. like Cheney saying, "I'm sorry about that. Your your dad was a good man, but he shouldn't have been in my business." Yeah, the <clears throat> it's often you know. <laughs> When you, when you are someone who thinks very little of making a habit of killing people, the people you kill, each individual one becomes less of a person, but they don't become less of a person to the people who that person right. left behind. Um, you know, one thing that's interesting is when right before she falls in the pit, she shoots him. 
mm-hmm. and she's like has this moment where she like it's like a beat your chest i just won moment but then it says there's that line where it says but i was not to taste um yet i was not to taste the victory the i kick of the big pistol sent me reeling backward i'd forgotten about the pit yeah so uh, what it, what is portis saying about justice here with this idea um that she feels like she's she's got victory but she wasn't able to taste it so does portis feel like do you think portis as the author and the story that he's crafting feels like maddie is getting has gotten justice at the end like like for example if she falls in and she had died would justice still have been met okay so I think this goes back to what we talked about with Murder on the Orient Express. You, you, we raised these questions about what does justice look like when institutions have failed? And is it ever okay to take the law into your own hands? And one of the things we said during the, the murder discussions was that the taking of a life is always going to be a wound upon the soul of the person who does it, whether it's self-defense, whether it's justified, whether you're even the executioner, that's just a metaphysical reality the taking of a life leaves a scar. So I actually, so, so I did not think the story should have ended with her shooting Tom Cheney. I think we absolutely needed to have the, the next part. So, okay. So for the art, from the archetypal perspective, she falls into the pit, which is a representation of death because the, the pit is the open tomb. And she even says, I had the experience of thinking my spirit came out of my body right? It's, it's, so it's a death. She also calls it a hellish place. So, I mean, it's just, it's just so thick with the archetypes. And of course there are snakes there and bats there and all of these symbols of, of death. So she, so she, she dies, right? She experiences a death uh, and then rooster saves her. And so you have the resurrection moment there. And, um, and, and, and it's extremely significant that rooster kills him by smashing in his head, which in an archetype situation, that's, that's always what happens, right? That you have to smash the head of the enemy. This goes back to Genesis 3.15. And this is why you see monsters beheaded and uh, in the stories all the time, it's always a head injury. But so, so how I read it is, yes, she succeeds in killing the bad guy, right? But it's not without a tremendous cost. She does experience a type of death, and that's probably why she can't be fully integrated into the community after that. Uh, so she does experience a death. She has a lasting wounds. So now she's got this amputated arm. Um, and, and so, yes, she got her man, but it was not without a tremendous cost. And if she had died, it would be the same thing. But th- that would have been justice, but it's, it's, it's a tremendous cost. So that's how I read it. Tim, do you think if if uh, if she had died, would justice have been met? Served? Yes. Would justice served? What is? That? Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, I don't think that her death de- depletes the power of the justice in any way. Do you think justice was served any less because he wasn't? Uh, because Tom Cheney was uh, not sort of tried and in the public Taken to trial and no, in, in the don't. public the public realm identified as the person who committed these atrocities and therefore was the person who was going to pay for them? I mean, the only, we've had conversations about justice before. What was the big one we were talking about? We got in this big discussion about, you know, how do you articulate what exactly is justice? Is it just fairness? Is it, you know, what is it? Um, I think having a trial, having him hung, that would have been, I mean, I think the whole purpose of a public hanging is just to put terror in the minds of 
potential ne'er do wells. So they see like, if I continue on my path, that's where I will end up a public hanging and shaming, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I, if that's part of your vision of justice, that justice entails a warning to the community that practices the justice, then it's an incomplete justice. But if it's, if your vision of justice is closer to fairness, then I think that he killed Maddie's father, thus he dies. That is justice has been done. One of the things that I was, uh, Noticing is that the book opens with Maddie watching a hanging, mm-hmm. uh, the three hanging, yeah. in fact, um, and then it ends really with her hanging in a pit. And uh, you know, in some ways, you ex- sort of expect the mirror to be, or it's possible. You know, he he builds in the the potential for Cheney to kind of be hanged um, as the mirror, kind of mirroring hangings. Um, but really, what oh, yeah. happens is she is the one who is the one who ends up hanging in the pit. Um, so you bring these questions of justice get brought up, even whether or not the people who get hung at the beginning were actually being justly hung. And then she's the one that, um, because in a sense, because she tries to take things into her own hands or because she tries to pursue justice herself, she pays the consequences for it. In some ways you could read that as being sort of cynical about the nature of justice and the nature of the universe, I suppose. So does this mean, David, that you don't think that justice was done? You know, I don't know. I kind of go back and forth on it, actually. Um, I think that one of the big themes in Western stories um, is questions of whether justice can be done in these sort of situations. I think I would totally agree with that. It's so complicated and she is suffering for it. Um, yeah, at the beginning in the hanging, the guy gives this speech of the problem is I killed the wrong guy, right? So I thought that was a really interesting way that, that we were starting the story was a discussion of vengeance versus justice. And this guy, it, it's never questioned that the right thing to do is to go after the killer. His problem was that he shot the wrong guy. And in questions of justice, one of the reasons, I'm not saying the only reason, but certainly one of the reasons that we want to take people to court and let them have their day in court and have witnesses and things is because we want to ensure that the right person has been brought to justice, right? It's interesting that that's never a question in this book. We always know it's Tom Cheney. He confesses. Oh yeah, I did it. I'm sorry about that. Your dad was a good guy. So that is just off the table. It's, it's never a question. It would be a very different story if she thinks it was Tom Cheney, but she's not sure. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that's interesting for me is that the more I read this book, the more I strangely sympathize or I don't want to say sympathize, but the more I kind of, um, I'll say sympathize, the more I kind of sympathize with Tom Cheney, the less of a villain he is, the more I read it. How come? Um, and the more I actually buy his case that things are not going right for him. Um, and I think, because I think one of the big things about Western stories is this question of how do, how are bad men created? Well, Maddie says that, right? How does a cowboy go wrong? She yep. said that in a section. Yep. And so like Ned Pepper in a way seems like this archetypal villain, right? Like he's the big bad, the guy who, who in the end is the one that they're going to have to overcome and outsmart and, and, and kind of like 
um, he's the Jesse James sort of character and one of his, and some guy, someone got roped up in him and he's going to protect this guy. And, all that. and it's not really like that at all. Um, these guys, all of these guys from Labeef and Rooster and Maddie to the bad guys, like it's all of them are sort of in that there, but for the grace of God, go I, you know, type situation. Yes. Mm. And I think that's a big question. That's a big thing in, in Western stories. And that's why I think it's a little bit subversive because early on in, in the sort of, um, the sort of uh, development of the romantic Western story, even in the earliest movies, like you can trace, there's an amazing video essay online about the work of John Ford, the famous Western director, probably the greatest director of Westerns of all time. And there's this video essay that traces his stories and how in like the 1930s, there's a movie called Stagecoach, which is one Mm -hmm. of the most famous Westerns of all time, uh, early John Wayne movie. And you've got this sort of truly archetypal um, uh, character where, where he is, he's sort of a knight and he's protecting truth goodness in the american ways <laughs> you know and and like it's there's this um very hopeful note struck in this movie um and then you get uh later on you get a movie that he made like uh, she wore a yellow ribbon where he's this uh, ex-civil war a uh, union soldier and he is he's a little older he's a little wiser um but there's still this romance to it that they're out uh on the frontier, uh, making sure that people are protected and, and uh, you know, making sure that justice is met and all that. And then in the late 50s, you get what I consider to be um, the greatest Western of all time, if not the greatest American movie of all time, The Searchers. Uh, and all three of these are John Wayne movies. And this is, this is uh, a movie about a Confederate soldier who his, um, all his family gets, um, you know, a group of like Comanches or something uh, burn their house down and kill them all, except they take his niece captive. And he spends seven years trying to find her. And then in the end, what happens when he actually does find her is much more complicated than it seems like it should be. Um, and so there's this question of w- these questions of justice, but what is what does it mean to be a hero? What does it mean to be a to be a bad guy? Like, and and how do you how do how do men who live the, these difficult lives that they lead? How do they avoid becoming bad men? And so in a sense, it seems cynical to kind of frame the book in these questions. But I think that um, with what you're seeing, this, this, it's why he adds this coda at the end about Rooster not staying in the light. Because, because I think he wants it to, to be clear that it's, it's so easy. It would be so easy for Labeef to have become Tom Chaney and not to have become... Um, to have become a U.S. Marshal, and that maybe he's yeah. off somewhere, be and he be, he did become that. I think that's one of the reasons why we don't see what happens to him, is because there's this gray area. There's this possibility that he became something something less. Like he be, he somehow for whatever reason he became, you know, he 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 did a, he took an action that was maybe more like Tom Cheney than it was like what what Rooster did in saving her. Um, I completely agree with all of that. Uh, I also did not read Tom Chaney as a villain. He just seems sad and pathetic and broken. And again, I go back to something I talked about in, in the last episode that I think the young boy, Billy is the mirror of Maddie because you have two situations and both of them just sort of fall in to these groups. One, the bad guys, quote unquote, one, the good guys, quote unquote. Um, but the boy also is green. He also doesn't really know how to fire a gun, right? Cause he's, they find out he's doing it wrong and he's terrified and it's a complete mirror to what happens when Maddie tries to fire the gun and she doesn't think about the recoil. She's green. It does. His greenness does kill Billy. Her greenness almost kills her. 
So I completely agree. I felt very strongly that whole there, but for the grace of God, go I theme running through that. No, nobody seems like a true villain as much as you're left wondering. And Aportis is deliberate about this. He raises questions, but doesn't answer them about how exactly did Billy end up with this group? We don't know. Right. right he came from right. a good family. And then these other guys, well, they have a terrible mother and a messed up home life and they're kind of soft in the head and they got led Some questions into are unanswerable. Like, yeah. So I, yeah, I think he definitely happen raises is... that question. Why are these people in this situation? Because yeah. what you see with Billy, this really struck me. Once you make that decision to join this group, you can't get out. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of like falling into a pit. Um, hey, hey, yes. uh, before we continue, I want to say a quick word from our friends who I've mentioned before over at Duke University, their Arite Initiative, July 9th to 14th. Um, for high school, it's a high school summer seminar in ethics, philosophy, and religion. It's on the Duke campus. We've talked about this already. Um, it will prepare, the seminar will prepare high school students with a roadmap for approaching question, uh, subjects and questions of ethics, philosophy, and religion. Um, and they're going to use text from literature, philosophy, and theology. The seminar will examine such topics as the meaning of virtue, substance of human nature, the question of human flourishing, the metaphysics of reality, and the nature of truth, and a whole lot more. This seminar will be co-taught by several Duke instructors and professors and is open to current high school students entering their junior or senior years. As we've talked about in previous episodes, there is zero fee associated with applying or attending. Um, and plus you get... Uh, housing in the Duke dormitories and the students we provided with meal cards. So any students interested in applying should email John Rose at john.rose at duke.edu. And again, that's J-O-H-N dot R-O-S-E at duke.edu for further details. And applicants will be considered on a rolling basis until April 26, 2018. Uh, we've received several emails from people who were interested that had some questions about the professors and things like that. And I would say if you're, if you have questions about that sort of thing, do go ahead and email John Rose because, and he'll, he'll fill you in and uh, be able to answer questions and help you figure out if this is the right sort of thing for your, for your, uh, for your students from, for your family. Um, but it's a pretty cool opportunity if, if you can make it work. Um, again, that's uh, July 9th to 14th and it's john.rose at duke.edu for further details and applications will be considered until the 26th of this month. So you got 20 days from the day that we're recording this and posting this show. So if you are interested in that, check that out. And thanks, of course, to Duke and the Arite Initiative for helping make Close Reads possible. Okay, let's finish this conversation. Hey, David, are we doing a discussion about the movie? Yes. Or is so, this... No, okay. we'll talk about the movie and we'll do the Q&A episode. Um, and we'll talk at the end of the show. We'll iron out some details about uh, okay. what it's going to look like. Um, I, I want to go back to this idea of, of the hero. I'm, I'm super fascinated with this. The more I read it, the more I'm, I'm not sure who Portis wants us to see as the hero. Um, because in the end, Maddie takes... As you said, Maddie has the initiative that pushes the story forward, right? Um, in a way, in a lot of ways, it's her agency that sort of uh, uh, pushes the story to its climax. Um, but it's Rooster who sort of helps resolve the, the the conflict. So, with with those sort of structural elements in mind, Tim, I, I want to kind of push on this a little bit more. Tim, who did you say you think was the hero? I. I... And I, I, don't, I don't want even want to talk about. Uh, let's go beyond protagonists, I guess. Like, not who's our who's the hero, but and and I want to think of hero in terms of the way a lot of people were thinking about it for the bracket. So it's kind of ironic, but like, who's the hero who? Um, and I don't necessarily mean is worth imitating, 
but who's the one right. that um well i'll let you define it within that framework how you want it i don't want to beat i don't want to force you to think about things I can in choose, too specific of a way if i can choose both of them then i would choose both of them but if i can't for the sake of the question i think i would choose maddie and i would choose rooster as sort of um she deputized rooster into her hero quest and why is she the hero i do think the fact that she pulls the that although that she doesn't kill cheney i think that she's the one who puts him down with a shot um i think that she's the one that dri- she drives the story forward i mean she basically she almost puts labeef and rooster on their horses she funds the um whole campaign she uh is the one who i mean she kind of chases them down when they're trying to kind of pursue tom cheney without her and i think if like to to complete the arc of the story which is tom cheney has done an injustice by killing someone she's the one that moves all of the action forward so that the arc is completed by the death of tom cheney i think tom cheney is still alive if maddie's not part of the story Hmm. Okay. Angelina, do you have any, any further thoughts on this? Uh, okay. So I'll define hero differently. And so I'll just, I'll make the opposite argument. Not that I disagree that Maddie is the hero of the story. I think it's both of them. So now I'll make it, I'll make a case for Rooster then. Um, if we're talking about hero in terms of who demonstrates heroic qualities, I would say that Maddie's heroic quality is persistence, but it's Rooster who has self-sacrificing bravery. Um, so that charge where he charges into Ned Pepper's guys and he's shooting them and he's completely outnumbered and just, you know, charges right into death, um, was a self-sacrificial act. And then of course he rescues Maddie at the end and comes back for her and all of that. But I read, so this was really interesting because we were talking about what role the civil war has in this and, and Rooster not knowing who he is as a person in the world because of what he's been through in the war. So I found out that that particular charge technique was part of what quadrilles raiders were famous for, that they mm. would put mm-hmm. the reins of the horse in their teeth, a gun in each hand and charge the enemy. And it would so freak the enemy out they would gain the upper hand. So that was an interesting twist that this thing, because this, this group of raiders was known for massacres and just really, really bad things. So that when Labif is saying, yeah, I heard y'all killed women and children. He's like, yeah, I heard that too. That's a dirty lie. Well, according to the internet, that's not a dirty lie. <laughs> so we know that's completely trustworthy. But, um, <laughs> but so what was interesting to me, there was that the, what he had learned in the act of war in this group of men who are, known to be, you know, these massacres is what ends up being the thing to save them. So I thought that was an interesting kind of fullness of that idea. So I would say Rooster maybe is the hero in the more traditional sense of how people are thinking of the person who exhibits the heroic qualities. Um, I agree that he's not the primary force of the action. Um, But I think think in the end, Rooster ends up being rather heroic. And I loved that moment when Maddie sees Rooster off at the distance and realizes he's going to charge him. And she says, I can't believe I thought he didn't have grit. That is no truer grit than that. You know, she's like, she's so pumped up and excited. And yes, he had grit. That was a great moment. And then next thing you know, everything's bad again. (laughs) So, okay. 
Everything's bad again. What do you mean, David? Well, because right after she's that, she falls into the pit and she's in trouble again. And they're it's like they're uh, celebrating okay. and they okay. stop paying attention that that Cheney was not actually. And, and by the way, you know, your whole theory about Maddie having a crush on Labeef, I'm fascinated with and noticed again at the end, right? So at the end, it is Labeef's mistake and carelessness of not watching Tom Cheney when he shoots um shoots one of the guys uh, attacking rooster right um he has not properly he has not properly um apprehended the, the the suspect and and tied him down right um so that's what lets them get them and I, and what was so interesting to me about that was that maddie has like what four paragraphs of excusing that yeah yep <laughs> Would she have been so kind to anyone else? But just like, well, I mean, what's he supposed to do? Yeah, probably I mean, not. Nobody can watch the prisoner that close. Otherwise, they'd become a prisoner of the prisoner. I was like, man, right. the lady doth protest too much about how this was not Labeef's fault. That was interesting. So, <laughs> and the fact that she never marries, and her little brother teases her that she never married because she had a thing for Rooster, is an is it's an interesting complication going back to what you're saying too about this kind of pseudo romance tension, whatever yeah so <clears throat> one of the things that this one of the reasons why this hero concept is really interesting to me is because i think i i think that one of the things that portis is doing in this book is basically telling us that there sort of is no hero to this book it's kind of the idea that we're not we are not some okay so i was reading this book recently i i for for reasons that i can't state right now i can't tell you which book it is but um <laughs> What book is it, David? No, no, no it's, it's perfectly cryptic. But um, I feel like this is another thing where you reference a TV show and talk about how great it is, and then say, "Just to be clear, I'm not recommending it." No, no, no. It's yeah. not because I can't recommend it. It's because I'm going to recommend it later. I can't say oh, what it okay. is. I, okay, it's okay. like there's a reason. I it, technically it's not published. Um, but um, in this book I'm reading, and someone makes an interesting point that um, that the perfectly self, the person who is truly self-aware. Is a, is aware that they're not the hero of their own story, that mm. none of us are really the heroes of our own stories. So yeah, we're all part of a story, but we are not the heroes. Um, we're not the ones who sort of bring resolution to our stories. Um, and most of the time, what's happening is one thing after another is happening to us, and we're doing the best that we can. Um, and in the within the context of what of what we believe, you know you know you can you can, we can we can narrow it down and say well we believe that we're not the, the the heroes of our own stories but um you know christ is the one who's the hero of our stories and i don't know that and i'm not saying that portis is trying to create some kind of analogy like c.s lewis like analogy for for you know for like right. who's the christ figure or whatever um and in some ways he kind of is i suppose but um as angelina pointed out earlier but one of the things that makes this book funny is that I think the humor in this book comes from the fact that that old Maddie, who's telling the story, older Maddie anyway, actually doesn't really have a lot of self awareness. Um, and so, she, she 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 the way she describes herself, the way she describes the story, and things like that. Um, she well, maybe older Maddie does, but young Maddie, she's so serious about everything, and that that humor comes out of the the sort of deadpan seriousness that she interacts with everyone around her um and so she doesn't have a lot of self-awareness but the one who does have self-awareness is rooster rooster realizes and has a lot of guilt in the thing because of the things that he did he's recognizes his own flawed nature 
And I think that maybe one of the things that happens for Maddie is that she recognizes her own flaws through this story. Um, in a lot of ways, Labeef is the one who doesn't recognize his flaws. He's He's got so much pride that he doesn't necessarily, we, we don't know what he learns and then he disappears. Yeah, I don't see his character going through much change. I didn't, I didn't see him being terribly different at the end than he is at the beginning. Right. And, but Rooster sort of all along recognizes, and it's sort of why he's in this sort of depressed state at the beginning, I think. Yeah, and that's why Rooster's ending is, is sad. So sad, right? Because he tries to turn himself around. He tries to do right by Potter's widow and kids, right? And he's going to have this, you can just, Im- I mean, Portis doesn't tell us this, but you can just imagine Rooster's speech to himself, fresh start, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my life together. I'm going to do yeah, things Yeah, this is right. Lonesome Dove. This is just Lonesome Dove we're talking about right Well, here. I haven't seen that, but yeah. okay. So he's like, yeah. I think he's like, what, 47 or something at, at, yeah. at this point in the book. So they're yeah. certainly young enough to have this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, I'm gonna do right by these people and I'm going to turn my life around. And then, then we find out he abandons them. Like, you know, so, I mean, we know what happened, right? He can't. He can't. He can't get past the demons. He can't turn his life around. There's no place for him in the world. He ends up being a sideshow freak, essentially. And that's really sad. And that, and that's what kind of what, what that kind of, I guess, goes along with my theory that there's not really a hero to this story because we've talked about how Maddie sets things moving forward, right? She has this agency that drives this early part of the narrative. But basically, once they cross the river, she, is, she does this like very robust, very like, she has this agency. She goes into the river, she rides the horse across, and she meets up, she follows them, right? From the time that they're together until the end of the story, it stops being about what they're doing and it starts being about what's happening to them and how they're responding to that. From mm-hmm. the fact, and, and their plans never go according, you know, whether it's Labeef's plan, Maddie's plan, or Rooster's plan, the plan never works. So That's know, true. At that point, it's less like a quest and more like a series of misadventures, right? And yeah, in some ways, until the end. When Rooster, has, the quest is he he takes he saves her life, right? Um, and and then things good. You know, one of the things I was thinking is they go they go to the hut where those you know, Moon and those guys are right, and they have this plan, and everything goes badly. The two guys die, and then there's this gunfight, and the guys get away, and the wrong people die, right. and Tom Cheney's not even there anyway, and then. They, they go on and they, they find out that they robbed the bank. And then, and then next thing you know, she's just standing at the water and Tom Cheney's just there. They didn't, they didn't actually, I mean, they didn't even mean to find them there. No, yeah, it's He's totally anticlimactic. And then, and then she falls into this, this thing and like Rooster is just doing the best he can. And the best thing he knows how to do is without thinking, do something wildly stupid, but brave at the same time. And it ends up working, but his horse dies. And then, um, you know, Labeef doesn't do the right thing. And then she ends up in the pit. And then Rooster has to save her. And that's when a couple things actually go their way. They run into the right people along the road. And they run into people who have the wagon that he can rob. And then they run into the guy who sends his son along with them at night. And then they eventually, they get her there just in time. And so there's not really... A, there's not it's not really about a person resolving things through their heroism it's about people going along as best they can and doing the best they can as things happen to them and then that's ultimately you know rooster's doing the best he can he's he once he gets old he's no longer able to do the things he used to do so he ends up dying in a in a sideshow where he basically gets put in glass right um 
and people can look at him. Um, and in that sense, yes, Tom Cheney and those guys are not an essential qualitative difference, right? Because they're because Tom Cheney's whole position is I'm just doing the best I can. Like a lot of things have gone against me. Just well, had some let, rotten luck. Charles, Port, it's not an accident that Charles Portis puts our you know so-called hero who saved the day rooster in exactly the same situation that Jesse James died in. Probably right. maybe one of the most, you know, notorious outlaws in American history. Um, you know, he puts it, he, and the, you got all these, he basically, she, she never once says rooster went to the same place that Buffalo bill went. It's she was, he went to the same place that then she lists a bunch of outlaws that they went to. Mm-hmm. She doesn't draw a parallel with these classic romantic American frontier heroes. She draws the parallel between Rooster and all the outlaws. Yes, and, yeah. and a very interesting detail about that description was about how disappointed the audience was. That, <laughs> yeah. that those men themselves don't live up to their own myths. They basically just come out and phone in the performance, right? It's not even exciting. They just, oh, he just waved a gun around and then went back inside. And that was very interesting. Of course, now little Frank enjoyed it. I highly recommend anybody interested in this idea watch. Um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Yes, that I have seen and quite enjoyed. It touches on a lot of these same themes, but, especially that latter half. And I and I wonder. Also, it's a good book by Ron Hansen. Wonder what the significance is that that little Frank enjoyed it. I mean, he seems to be very disconnected from Maddie's world, and she has, you know, it's the Maddies of the world, I guess, that can let little Franks exist. Well, but little Frank is just he he's a stand-in for every boy who drove the the dime novel culture that they created the romantic the american romantic right myth. right it's romantic in his mind right you, you mean because he because he doesn't tom, it's what tom sawyer is reading oh exactly like the equivalent of what tom sawyer is reading back in missouri so i mean later on like an equivalent tom sawyer character mm-hmm. i felt sad for maddie at the end though i'm not gonna lie not that she wasn't married but that she just doesn't seem happy and she seems way too interested in money on self-preservation. Yeah. Okay. So I was going to, yeah. Tim, what do you think about that? About Maddie's ending? The fact that she's, do you agree that she's, that was sad? That Maddie's. Yeah, I sad? do think it's sad. I was, I was, it didn't bother me that she was so interested in money. It more bothered me that she had lost an arm. Um, like she's she, less she of a person. Seemed, yeah. She's less of a person. She seems like she's, she's cranky. She's, um, <laughs> What did she say to the guy who doesn't uh, rise to greet her when she's going to, you know, seek out uh, Rooster at the carnival? Trash. He was trash. Yeah. I just think that she kind of she's gotten hardened in her old age. I mean, she's yeah. kind of hard already as a fourteen-year-old, but she continues to go in that direction. And I wish that she. Granted, the frontier is not an easy place to. Um, encourage the softer virtues but i do kind of wish that she'd move in that direction okay so maybe maybe this is what portis is is raising right i mean there's no question maddie is a quote-unquote success like she she's a total contrast what was his name chimsworth what was the guy at the beginning the shopkeeper who just is like i'm gonna go home this was a terrible idea the one who sells her the oh. horses stoneworth oh Smith. It has Smith Stone in Smith? I don't his last know. name. You know who I'm talking yeah. about. The guy at the beginning with right. the glasses who's selling her the horses. And yeah. uh, he's the shop guy who fails. And and Maddie is the success. She's the complete opposite of that. She knows. Oh, you mean exactly Stone, you mean Stonehill. 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 There, there it is. Um she's the success, right? She's the financial success. She knows exactly what she's doing. And so is, is Portis 
raising the question though. I mean, a lot of these kinds of movies and, and stories raise that question. I'm thinking of Gone with the Wind. Post-war books especially raise the question of you know, who you have to be to succeed in this horrible, barbarian, violent landscape um, is less than human, right? I mean, she's, she's maimed. That obviously has metaphorical significance and she's not married. So there's also um, the implication of sterility there, right? Rather than productivity and fertility. And I mean, that's this is not something that can be passed on, right? So, well, so there's a lot of metaphorical significance about her as a as a type of character. That ties into the final line. Well, not actually the final line, but what could have been the final line of the book where she says, time just gets away from us. She's talking about how Labif is gone and uh, and how um, his cowlick probably doesn't have the starch in it anymore. She's very obsessed with how yes. he looks in the la- even that the last paragraph. That was adorable. That was adorable. And so, you know, he's probably old now and doesn't have as much starts in his cowlick. And then the line is, time just gets away from us. So there's this sense that as she's narrating it, she's like looking back fondly on him. And then she's mm-hmm. just sort of like, uh, then she's just feeling old. Time just gets away from us. And she hasn't, it, there hasn't been that productivity or that creativity in her life. You no, know, that so comes with stuck, having a family. She's stuck in that moment. And for her but time, it doesn't go, she's not going to have like children. It doesn't go on and it's going to end. Right. It's a, and neither I does Rooster have away. children. So both of them are like the end of an era kind of character. For her, you know, time gets away from us, but at least I avenged Frank rot my father's blood. That's kind of how it ends for her. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't have any, I don't necessarily have a lot to show for this life. I've got a lot of money, but in the end, time gets away from us. And I, I'm not, you know... I'm not passing on something to go on in the future, but at least I avenged his, his death, his blood. And there's something like, there's a, there's a sense of completion there, but I think that line about time just gets away from us, putting it on this continuum creates this sense that there's not closure. Like it seems like there's closure and completion, but it's also that there's not, it's not really going to resolve. Like she's not necessarily at peace at the end of it. No, I don't think so. Okay, last question. Tim, I want to hear from you on this one especially because you haven't had a... I I took your platform there for a few minutes. What... what, The book is called True Grit. Um, We hear a lot about, um, you know, people telling Maddie that Rooster had grit, but the book's called True Grit. So according to this book, what is True Grit? What does this... What is this book telling us about what real actual true grit is. Ooh. It's a good starchy cowlick. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, I think Maddie is- might actually think that. Oh, <clears throat> old Maddie who's looking back fondly. Which makes me think, while Tim's thinking, which makes me think that probably her affection for Labeef probably grew over the years. <laughs> Maybe she really didn't like him when she was 12, but as a 50 year old or whatever she's supposed to be writing back she probably is looking back that at that is very fondly. true she i mean she says he's probably an old man now but she still remembers him as this young dashing figure so in a way he's become her surrogate her surrogate love right like uh in a rose for emily i was just thinking that there's a long tradition of american literature of old ladies who are spinsters who have their their love from a long time ago well and they're women who who in a lot of ways expected you know, this knight in shining armor to appear to them for for uh-huh. years and years. That was like the expectation, um, but it never happened. And that's the tragedy. Like they sat there waiting and waiting and expecting and expecting. And 
in the end. And it's always connected to the idea that the world has changed and they did not change. Yep. Yes. They're waiting for something that's not going to exist anymore. I just read a rose for Emily the other day. So that was fresh on my mind. It's my favorite. It's my favorite short story to teach. Oh, it's a good one. It has a lot of the same ideas in this. All right, Tim. Yep. We're just covering your process. Are you ready? (laughs) I think that, um, the best way to answer it may be to juxtapose uh, Rooster with Labeef. I think Labeef, I think to some degree he's got I like this. grit, I like this. but he doesn't have true grit. And so, I mean, what's the difference between he and Rooster? Um, oh gosh, I don't, I don't know. It's like it's almost like a texture. I can feel the texture of true grit in my hand, and Labeef doesn't really have it, but Rooster does. Uh, it just seems like he has sort of an indomitable will and the kind of cantankerous common sense that will, that will help him accomplish his task. I, Hmm. I used to play basketball. I mean, David, you and I've talked about this all the time. You just played a week ago. You still play. We did. Well, not very well, but when you're picking a team, you know, sometimes it comes down to, do you choose the young guy who's really athletic, who has a lot of ability, or do you choose the older guy who's, (laughs) who is, did y'all call him rooster at the basketball game? (laughs) I should have, I should have. The one who, um, you choose the older guy who has lost a little bit of his athletic prowess, but he's accumulated lots of experience along the way. And it seems like choosing the older guy who just kind of knows how to grind out a win and stay on the court. That's kind of what rooster has. Hmm. You know, I think like Labeef has got the superior firepower with that sharps rifle. He's got hmm. youth. He's, you know, He's he looks got a good. lot of stuff on his side. Rooster he looks would have good. He's got this jangling behind him like that. Yeah, Ru- Labeef looks the part. He looks yeah. like he should know what he's like. He should be able to take care of business. But yeah, he Rooster's doesn't have bad. the KG experience that Rooster has. He doesn't have. And I, I kind of take that as true grit. But I think there's also kind of a moral component to it. Also, I don't think it's just experience. I think there's kind of like a willful inclination toward being just. And it's a weird thing to say because Rooster's, he's such a mixed character. He's such a ethically, con- not, not confused in his own mind, but he's from the outside. He's kind of, he, he's not a knight of, of light. He's not a beacon of light. Hmm. So then, okay, here's my final, my final question then is, uh, is, well, uh, Angelina, before I ask this question, I'll, I'll let you answer the question of what, what, where, how do you read the, the idea of true grit? I don't, I don't want to. Uh, I guess in that. my mind, what I heard when she would say grit is this, is this toughness, right? Just, just a really tough person uh, who doesn't leave when the going gets rough, right? So it's and bravery, but it's like more than bravery. Hmm. I guess it goes with what Tim says, though, because. Yeah, it's experience that that allows you to kind of push through that. And maybe Labeef, when he's older, would have more, more, more grit. Like the experience gives you the kind of wherewithal to to push through, to to not leave when the going gets tough. Although, but in some ways, Mm. he does leave when the going gets tough. Like he leaves the Potter Woman later. 
And that's what makes it so complicated. Yes, yes. Well, you know, and I guess suppose there's different types of grit, grit on the battlefield, grit, 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 grit in, the, in, the, in the wilderness. It was going to look very different than domestic grit. That's true. And they and- probably don't translate, and that's probably also something, because I don't think it translates in Maddie either. I think Maddie has true grit, but that doesn't leave her to domestic bliss either. Mm-hmm. It's like going, I'll just stick with this, this the, the basketball thing Tim's talking about. There are lots of people who maybe they have this incredible ability to push, to play through like a professional athlete. Maybe he has the ability to, he's incredible under pressure late in the game. He can play with any sort of injury that as long as he's not like crippled, um, he knows how to involve other people. And he's a great leader in the context of a sporting event. But then in other parts of his life, he's, mm-hmm. he's helpless. He's lost. Um, and, and those it's, we're not, we're not all universally like superheroes, right? <laughs> we're not, not in every area. We're not universally like capable of, uh, of, of, of carrying on in a, in a thoughtful and perfectly moral way in every area of our life. Um, and, I, and it's not cynical to say that it's more realistic, I guess, but is this, does yeah. that make, does that make this a anti-hero story? And that's my final question. Is this a, is this a, a story of an anti-hero as opposed to a hero? there's a lot of anti-hero talk in, in modern story from TV and movies to literature. I, I don't think it's an anti-hero story. I think it's a hero story. I, mean, I just think because the frontier is so difficult to exact a clean form of justice, it might make us think that it's an anti-hero story, but no, I don't, I don't think so. I think that they, they get their man. They maintain a moral code in the process. Sure. Um, Rooster lies when he's outside the cabin and tells him, you know, we got a dozen men out here, whatever he tells him. And Maddie lies, but I've got 50 marshals over the hill. Um, But I think this, I think their moral code is one that is admirable. And I think they pursue it within that, within those bounds. And I think they achieve it within those bounds. Angelina, anti-hero? I don't, I don't think I'm ready to say it's an anti-hero, only because I think of that more like if, if the author would be showing virtue as an obstacle for our protagonist. Like, you know, he keeps trying to do the right thing and it blows up in his face. Uh, instead, I see just an incredibly uh, morally complicated and confused landscape. And I do think the book is raising the question of, you know, what does justice and virtue and heroism even look like? when you're out in the wild west, which yeah. is a question I think we're still when there wrestling are no with. there rules. Yeah, I think it yeah. absolutely is raising those questions, but I don't think it's anti here. I don't think it's deliberately setting out to prove that virtue is an obstacle to whatever, getting mm-hmm. things done. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that I guess that's it. I guess that's true, great guys. This was really good. And you know what else I thought when I read at the end? I thought how much I wish I had read this in one sitting instead of over four weeks. Like I'm oh, just gonna yeah. have, I think I'm going to have to just do that for myself. It's so short. And I feel like I may have missed something going quite this slow. Mm. Yeah. I wondered if, you know, we do a lot of books where it's like seven episodes. Um, this has, there's such a, this well, kind some of books lend themselves to that better. This one, I think, I think I would have been, and I noticed that a lot of our readers couldn't stop. But I felt like yeah. I had to stop or I was going to forget what I wanted to say. I, yeah. I've got to say, I really enjoyed doing it slower, but I've read it before. So for me, you know, like it's a book that definitely, well, yeah, there's a pace exactly. to it. 
and having ideally read it. i wish i had read it in one afternoon and then reread it for the, for the show it's always a mm. tough call to know which way to go if i should be like a fresh reader or have read right. it before but right, right i mean right. i still really liked it i'm not not criticizing the process it was just it's not very often that i think to myself oh this would have been great just to have marathon you know binge read through one afternoon <laughs> yeah yeah Okay, so we I did have... not feel that way about like Brideshead revisited. <laughs> I needed a, needed some moments of recovery. Yeah, right. Me too. <laughs> Me too. So we've got two kinds of episodes left. We have our Q and A episode that we typically do, which I'm terrified of because the, these guys are asking some hard questions. Don't ask me what justice is. I'm already telling you, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got. Um, we'll let Tim answer that one, and then. Um, but then I guess that means we have to accept his definition. Uh, and then... Um, I like that. I like the sound <laughs> of that. And then the other one is the movie tie-in episode. So um, shall we do those? We'll, we'll just have this good little discussion on the air. People can, can be, listen in on the process. Uh, shall we do those Riveting. over two weeks? Yeah, if you don't want to listen to this, see you later. Um, I thought we were going to do the movie one as a, as a Patreon only episode. So do we, do we do them? Okay. So we'll do one of them as a Patreon. Do we do the movie tie in episode as the, as the Patreon or do, do we do the Q and a episode as a Patreon episode? I think we do the movie as the Patreon because we've done other Q and A's as part of just the regular podcast. Okay. So we'll do the movie. I think Angelina, you're, you're agree with that. I right? agree. Yeah, okay. I agree. So we'll do the, uh, we'll do the movie tie in episode as the Patreon and we'll do our Q and a episode. So make sure you send in questions next week. I will be in Cincinnati, but I'll find some, some time, some place to, uh, to carve out a little bit of a recording time to answer some questions. Oh, I thought you were going to say you had time to watch the movie. I was going to say, you probably have it memorized. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've got a, there's a big homeschool convention there. So if you are going to be in Cincinnati at the great homeschool convention, come by the booth, say hello, pick up a close reads t-shirt or just wear your t-shirt and take a picture, whatever you want to do. And then Um, head back up to the Cersei hotel room and watch true grit. (laughs) You can come, you can come. Um, you can come hang out in the room and watch me record i guess that sounds that'd be really boring though because you only hear my side <laughs> asking the question all they would hear was interesting exactly <laughs> <laughs> and then they'd be so curious exactly and then they'll have to listen um so okay we'll do that we'll we'll find i'll find a, a way to get away for an hour and record some questions record some you know a q a episode so make sure you post your questions on facebook we'll we'll start a uh, thread there where you can do that and then we'll do the the movie time episode sometime and then we'll say we'll do that in the next two weeks just in case we can't get to it this week i don't want to make promises that i can't keep um but i believe the movie hey, dude, is a hashtag for the q a true grit hashtag q, uh, true grit q a Let's just call it, let's do hashtag true grit. It's just easier because I've discovered that people don't like typing Q and A because some people do the oh, ampersand yeah. and some people write it out. So let's just do yeah. uh, hashtag true grit okay, or hashtag so close reads. Okay, so when decide that we're recording the movie? Because I have to like write in my calendar when I'm going to watch the movie. <laughs> Sometime in the next two weeks, we'll try to get to that. So we'll talk okay. off the air about when we're going to actually record it. Um, I think it's on Netflix or Amazon Prime. Um, and of course, you can rent it. Uh, on iTunes and if not at your local movie store, if such a thing still exists in your area. Um, <laughs> head on down to the blockbuster. Yeah, can't do blockbuster, unfortunately. Um, but um, yeah, it's on, I know it's on iTunes. It's, you can get probably get a target for like 699 or something too. Um, so make sure you leave your questions. Hashtag. Let's just do hashtag close reads. I think that's probably the best. Um, 
and uh, we'll also try to create a thread for that so people can just post them there on the Facebook page. If you want to email them because you are not on Facebook, which I understand, then you can email me at david at circeinstitute.com and I will bring your questions. We'll get to as many as we can um, on the next week's show. Any final thoughts from either of you? No, None I for think- me. I'm looking forward to the questions. All right, cool. All right, well, for Angelina Stanford and for Tim McIntosh, for all of us here at the Cersei Institute, thanks so much for reading True Grid along with us. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to uh, the Arete Initiative at Duke and to Ohio Christian University for sponsoring. I am David Kern, and we will talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.